How do you think you got here? <laughs> oh. Have to give my computer a second to warm up. How are you guys? I feel like I haven't done this in a while. It's been since last year, actually. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it really has. It was the Sunday before Christmas that I, I last taught solo anyway. Um, but I'm glad, I'm glad to be up here. I feel like we are heavy in one direction. <laughs> Whatever. Do what you want. Um, there was a line in one of the songs that Robin sang this morning, and I'm terrible at knowing titles or even artists. I just pick up on lines. <laughs> and, um, and it said something along the lines of how far Jesus would go to reveal his love for us. You probably remember the exact line. It doesn't really matter. But in the middle of it, what I heard God ask is how far would we go to stay in step? with love, which I think is the more important question. He's made it clear how extensive his love is toward us. The bigger question is, is how far are we willing to go to stay in step with love, right? Anyone? Yes? Okay. Um, so this morning we're talking about identity, which I feel like we talk about all the time around here. Um, we said this on Wednesday. I'm like, how do we talk about identity in a different way than we have already? And, and God always comes through. He's got all kinds of ideas and plans. So it's easy to just lean into him and trust that he knows exactly what it is that he's wanting to say about identity. You guys, this is really weird. Can we shift, please? <laughs> like, seriously, just some of you come over here. Because I feel like there's vents over here in no man's land, and then everybody is, bam, right here. You'll just do me a great big favor. You know I'm needy. It's fine. Hello, those of you on Facebook land. Welcome. Thank you for being here with us. You can stay put. <laughs> yeah. It's fine. It's better. It's better. I just, I, I needed some, I needed some balance. Um. Before we get started, I just, as we were worshiping, it just kept getting more and more powerful. And there, there are times where Robin releases something that feels as if it's an alarm. And, and it, to me this morning, there was just this part where she was just going, and I don't know anything about music, so I'm sure that there is proper language to give to this. I don't have it for you. But there was no words she was just doing things in the spirit. And, and it was as if she were a siren. And, and I know that this is from, you know, probably Greek mythology. But that's what it felt like to me. It's like she was releasing a siren, an alarm, a wake up! You know? That's what it felt like. She was waking something up on the inside of us. See, here's the deal. We have to stay in step with love so he can use us any way that he wants, right? Robin may not have woke up this morning knowing that God was going to release an alarm through her. And even if she did, she probably wouldn't know exactly what she was unlocking in that moment, right? Sometimes God asks us to do something and we don't know the full repercussion or the full plan, the full destiny of what it is that he's asking us to do. But how far are you willing to go to stay in step with love? Are you willing to be used by him without having all of the answers up front? It's the big question. But in this moment, the room began to shift for me. And my spiritual eyes were opened up and I could see what was happening in the spirit realm. And it was as if there was a living, golden, shimmery ribbon just dancing throughout this space. And I knew instantly that it was the glory of the Lord. And then I saw a being in the middle of the room, right over here in this area here, about where Mike is at. This is funny. 
because this, this being was dressed like an orderly, and an orderly is an old-fashioned. Do we even have orderlies today, all of you medical people? That's not a word used. So I don't, that was instantly what dropped. And it was like an orderly. Like <laughs> we aren't, we aren't like back in the 60s where we have orderlies, and I don't even honestly know what they do. Is that like the equivalent of a CNA? Okay, yes, a helper, right? There was an orderly in the room, and, and I knew that it was a helper, and God instantly started reminding me of a dream that I had earlier in this week. And I knew that with the presence of an orderly that he was wanting to bring order to something for us that's very specific. Where his glory is, you can expect transformation. Yeah? You couple that with order and we're in trouble. You know? And I feel like we started off in these outer courts. We came in. We we're celebrating. We're happy to be alive. We've got some Thanksgiving going on, right? We entered the gates appropriately. We came into the courts with some praise. And then she released the siren. Then she released the alarm. And it shifted us into a deeper place in the realm of the spirit. Into a place where there's order, where justice reigns. How many of you need some justice and some righteousness in your life? If you don't have your hand up in the air, you don't understand the nature of the Father. You need justice and you need righteousness. Jeff, be healed in the name of Jesus. Right now, we just speak healing over your eyes. Every infection dry up right now in the name of Jesus. We speak restoration to you in Jesus' name. And so what my dream was about, and I totally was not even thinking of my dream this morning at all. But in the middle of all of this, God reminded me of a dream. And in my dream, I was at Pepper and Jonathan's house. We had gone there for a Wednesday night like we had been doing. <laughs> Haven't been there in a while. And our, our, our time there was as usual. It was deep and it was meaningful. And somewhere in the middle of it all, I fell asleep. I did. And... I woke up sitting next to, I was laying, there's a couch next to your door. I don't know if you knew that, but there's a couch, <laughs> dreams. There's a couch and it was sitting next to her door. And I woke up on this couch and I was awakened by a red Doberman pincher. And I knew in my dream that there were two of them, but one of them was licking me. And I was both terrified and intrigued. And it was one of those wake-ups where I was completely groggy, warm, and not sure I wanted to exist. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like those really, really deep sleeps and, and you're kind of like foggy and things aren't making a whole lot of sense. Add dream on top of that and it's crazy. But I forced myself to get up, one, because I was unsure of the dog, but what God is revealing to me this morning is that dog represents a guardianship that is over my life. And I woke up next to the entrance of a door because it's the command that is on my life right now. And he's awakening me to my destiny at a level that I have not understood. So I get up, and I'm not sure where anyone is at. I am the only person awake seemingly until I found a closet. And in this closet in Jonathan and Pepper's house was Pepper folding laundry, hanging laundry. You don't have to know a whole lot about the dream world to understand why Pepper was in a closet, people. The prayer initiative on Pepper's life is so profound that that's where I was able to locate her in my dream. I needed to locate her in my dream at the onset of this destiny understanding that is on my life. This has everything to do with identity. Do I understand what he's doing in me now? Not at all! And it's 
frustrating. It's frustrating. One second, I've got it all together and I know everything and it's all in line. And they understand. I understand. I have understanding. How many of you love to have understanding? Control freaks! It's you. <laughs> but here in this place, I don't have understanding. And so this question is for me, too. How far will I go to stay in step? I had to go rushing into this prayer space that Pepper has ownership of. And what was really weird about this closet was it was expansive and there was a lot going on in there. I'm in there having a conversation with Pepper and wasn't really, I don't know, I, I don't remember the conversation at all, but I'm just observing her folding laundry and I'm sure that there's a lot of revelation on that too. And then out from the corner in the depths of this closet comes Jonathan, clearly just exiting the shower. There is no shower in the closet in their home, but in my dream, in the space of a prayer closet, there is a, there is a place for showering. There is a place for refreshing rain. There is a place to be cleansed from the inside out. We need to get to this prayer closet, you guys. This dream isn't just about me, and it's not just about Pepper, and it's not just about Jonathan taking a shower. You know? It's about being reawakened to new identity. Are we capable of shifting with him? Are we? One second you think you've got a pastoral heart, Robin. <laughs> you know? Like, are you willing to be shifted? And how quickly can you do it? Are you going to hold on to what's comfortable, what's familiar, what you have control over? Or are you going to be the one that just pushes yourself and say, how far will I go to stay in step with love? Because love's not back there anymore. Love's not back there anymore. Love has advanced. Love is moving on. Are you moving on with love? The dream went on. And through this prayer closet, everything expanded. There was multiple rooms in Jonathan and Pepper's house. And there were people in every corner of their home doing various things. See, because what I know about prayer, right? What we know about prayer is it expands things. It opens things and it reveals the Father's heart. The Father's heart is inclusive. He's drawing all men to himself. I think you're saying that. If he be lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. Where on earth do you think he's lifted up best? In the space of prayer. There is a prayer initiative that is hitting the earth right now that we want to be a part of. That we have to be a part of. He's looking for people who will be living embers, but it requires something of us. There's a requirement. We have to be willing to give up everything that is comfortable and familiar. I shared a story on Wednesday about being at the salon and training John and realizing I don't know this very well and I definitely don't have the corner on this. I just do it. Are there, are there any people like that out there where you're just like, make it till you make it? Like, let's just jump in and do the thing because it needs to be done. That's, that's how Jesus tends to use me. And I was on my way to work the next day, and I was kind of frustrated. And I was like, 
God, I need to know more about this so I can actually teach other people. And he stopped me. He's like, stop thinking like that. Stop thinking like that. I'm not asking you to learn the ins and outs of everything, to be able to train people up, to do it the way you do it. I'm looking for people who will be a living flame who can be sent to go and do the things the way that I want them to do it. I'm looking for people who will see and do what I am doing and be a living expression of me on the earth. And it wasn't that he was saying that having knowledge was bad. Because the moment that my mind started to drift in that direction, he's like, stop it. You know, because there's going to be a time where we need a system in place. A system that can be duplicated. And there's going to be a time where the system doesn't matter. Are we in step with love? That's the question. In 2018, God said this to me. Change the conception of identity. Change the world. And it felt like a challenge, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I felt the weight of that phrase. Change the conception of identity. Change the world. And I didn't have even an inkling of what that could possibly mean. Still don't have much of an inkling of what that could possibly mean that I better understand it today. To change the conception of something is to go back to its foundations, to its inception, before its inception. So I started asking questions this week of what forms our identity? What goes into making us believe that we are something? Well, a lot does, actually. We pull information about ourselves pretty much anywhere. The magazines at the checkout. The people that we pass by on a regular basis. Those we do life with most regularly. Our most intimate times with Jesus. And our experiences. In Galatians 2, turn there to bring your Bibles today. Come on, people, bring your Bibles to church. We're going to Galatians 2, starting in verse 17. says, if we are those who desire to be saved from our sins through our union with the anointed one, does that mean our Messiah promotes our sins if we still acknowledge that we are sinners? How absurd. For if I start over and reconstruct the old religious system that I have torn down with the message of grace, I will appear to be one who turns his back on the truth. But because the Messiah lives in me, I've now died to the law's dominion over me so that I can live for God. Verse 20. My old identity has been co-crucified with Messiah and no longer lives. I'm going to read that again. My old identity has been co-crucified with Messiah and no longer lives. For the nails of his cross crucified me with him. And now the essence of this new life is no longer mine. For the anointed one, Jesus, lives his life through me. We live in union as one. My new life is empowered by the faith of the Son of God who loves me so much that he gave himself for me and dispenses his life into mine. So that is why I don't view God's grace as something minor or peripheral. For if keeping the law could release God's righteousness to us, the anointed one would have died for nothing. The point being that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And this has to be our daily reality in order to have a right identity formed. 
We take on so many features as our identity, and most of them look nothing like Christ. Most of them are birthed out of shame, guilt, envy, jealousy, fear. Not Christ. So how do we go back and change the conception of identity? Do you remember Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus? Well, listen, I'm about to tell you. Nicodemus is like intrigued, yet not really wanting to give up the identity that he's most comfortable and familiar with, right? He's not a disciple. He's a religious leader of the day. But he's curious. There's something provoked inside of him. He feels, and I believe this is what is really true, he feels as if he's missing out on something. Jesus has a distinct way of provoking jealousy, doesn't he? So Jesus agrees to meet with Nicodemus in the darkness, in a secluded location where no other religious leaders can see him meeting with Jesus. It's possible he could have lost everything if he would have been found out, but only to gain everything, right? And Jesus walks him through what his life is all about, why Jesus exists, and what that means for Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus, well, you just have to be born again. And Nicodemus is so perplexed because that's what wrong identity does to us. It takes the simplistic things of the spirit realm and it makes them super complex. And Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. You want me to go back into my mother's womb to be born again? Ouch. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. This isn't about the physical, right? This is about the spirit realm, Nicodemus. Why is Jesus walking him through this? Nicodemus has pulled on different things to form his identity. And the very thing that he needs the most is sitting right there in front of him. Let's turn over to Matthew. Going to Matthew 11. Yes. Let's start in verse 7. And as these went away, Jesus began to say to the crowds concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man arrayed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the houses of kings. But why did you go out to see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and much more than a prophet. This is he concerning whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen one greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of the heavens is greater than he. But from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of the heavens is taken by violence and violent men seize it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what? Shall I liken 
this generation. It is like little children sitting in the marketplaces who call to the others and say, we have played the flute to you and you did not dance. We have sung a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he was a demon. He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her works. I love this portion of scripture because this is exactly where we are at as a society. I've done it all for you. I've done it this way and I've done it that. And you're still not satisfied with who I am. You will neither mourn nor rejoice. You are inconsolable. We are so what's insulated by wrong identity that we can't even recognize him when he's in our face. I'm here. I'm here. I've played the flute. I've played the funeral song. I've done it all. You still cannot recognize me. He goes on and he says, then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his works of power took place because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, Chorazin, however you say that. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the works of power which took place in you had taken place in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who have been exalted to heaven, to Hades you will be brought down. For if the works of power which took place in you had taken place in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in that day of judgment than for you. He's saying, if what I have already done in these cities would have taken place in Sodom or Gomorrah, those cities would have remained today because they would have shifted. They would have been moved. They would have been provoked. They would have found themselves within me. We have become a gluttonous nation, feasting on everything coming our way. And Jesus is just looking for embers who will take on a right identity, who will shift when he says to shift, who will mourn when he says to mourn, and who will rejoice and dance when he says to do so. Identity is everything. But we've got to be willing to go back and have everything stripped away that is not of him. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 11. And we're going to start in verse 16. Again, I say... Let no one think me to be foolish, but if otherwise accept me even as if I were foolish, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as if in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you bear gladly with fools because you yourselves are wise. For you bear it if anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours you, if anyone takes you, if anyone lifts himself up, if anyone beats you in the face. By way of self-disparagement, I say this. Supposedly, we ourselves are weak, 
But in whatever anyone else is daring, I speak in foolishness. I also am daring. Hebrews are they? I also. Israelites are they? I also. The seed of Abraham are they? Me too. Ministers of Christ are they? I speak as being beside myself. I more so. In labors more abundantly. In imprisonments more abundantly. In stripes excessively. In deaths often. Under the hands of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. In journeys often, in dangers of rivers, in dangers of robbers, in dangers from my race, in dangers from the Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in dangers of the wilderness, in dangers in the sea, in dangers among false brothers, in labors and hardship, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness. Apart from the things which have not been mentioned, there is this. The crowd of cares pressing upon me daily. The anxious concerns for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is stumbled and I myself do not burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things of my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, guarded the city of the Damascians in order to seize me. And in a basket, I was lowered through a window, through the wall, and escaped his hands. Why is Paul going through this litany of hardship? He's laying this all out there, and what we don't know, because we didn't read it, but before he goes through this entire litany of hardship, he's laying out this... this um, He's talking about this claim of super apostles that have come to preach a gospel that is missing some ingredients, right? And he's like, if we must boast, let's boast in the things that actually acquaint us with the suffering of the Savior. See, we are unwilling to find our identity in suffering because it's painful. But it is no longer I who live. Because it's Christ who lives within me. I can endure all hardships because it is no longer I who live. But the Savior that has taken up residence within me. I live and move and have my being because he lives. I want to read something to you that is just, guys, this is, wait, I want to read it in here. This is good. This is so good. I want us to be, I want us to be okay with the hardship that's come our way. Not that we find identity in the hard, but because we can lean back into the Savior and say, it's not about me. It's about him. Because the more I die, the more my flesh shrivels up and dies, the more apparent he becomes to the world around me. Yes? But go to Song of Songs. Oh, this is going to be so fun, you guys. I'm not sure you're ready. We know the gist of the Song of Songs, right? We know that the first several books, she's really trying to understand who she is in him, right? And in chapter five, she has laid herself down and he comes a knocking. And when the Savior comes a calling, it's always good to get up, put your clothes back on and answer the door. But she doesn't because she's content with where she's found herself. And her life is not without hardship. We know that. The whole book starts off that way. 
She, she makes it very clear what her hardship has been like. But in chapter 6, see the end of, of chapter 5, she gets up. He's gone. She gets up, but she runs through the town, and she's looking for him everywhere. She's like, where has he gone? Where has my lover gone? I changed my mind. Come back. I want to open the door. Right? Anybody been there? Yeah. But she's already gone running, and she has already been beaten. She's been beat up in this in-between time. But this is what, this is what, um, oh, we should just start at the beginning. The, the, um, the, the, the daughters say this to her, where has your beloved gone? Oh, you most beautiful among women. Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? I love this because it gives us a picture into what happens when our passion becomes so great that the onlookers are like, honestly, do, right? She says, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to feed in the gardens and gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He pastures his flock among the lilies. I love this proclamation. I belong to him and he belongs to me. And this next part, you guys, I, just please stay with me because this next part is so, so good because on the backside of what we just read about Paul's hardship, this is like a response from the Savior himself, how he feels about us when we endure, when we stand as those who are most victorious because it is no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives within me. And this is his response. You're going to love this. You are as beautiful, my love, as Terza. And what he's saying there, Terza was the capital city of Israel's kings. You want me to read that again? You are as beautiful, my love, as the place where royalty comes from. As lovely as Jerusalem, as terrible as an army with banners. Don't just, are you imagining this? As terrible as an army with banners. Say, I'm terrifying. Turn your eyes away from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats that repose on Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing all of which have borne twins, and none of them is bereaved of her young. Your cheeks are like a piece of pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is but one. She is the only one of her mother. She is the choice one of her who bore her. The daughters saw her, and they called her blessed. The queens and the concubines, they also praised her. Who is this woman who looks forth like the dawn? Ah, when he looks at you, he sees breaking light through the darkness. What we endure in hardship is only for a moment compared to the breaking dawn of his glory that will overshadow us. I loved it that Christy started this morning off by talking about the overshadowing because that same shadow that healed the man that came out to sit at Gate Beautiful is the same overshadowing or hovering of the Holy Spirit when everything was formless and void. It's the same. And he's saying, you, my daughter, are like the breaking dawn. You have become like the overshadowing because what has been formed on the inside of you is that powerful. It breaks through darkness and becomes a message just because you exist. Not because she knew a lot of things. Not because she could open her mouth and just spew out a whole lot of words. Because she existed in him through hardship. He became the only thing she wanted. 
Same with Paul. He has that road to Damascus experience, this major takedown. He's on his way to kill Christ's people one moment, and the next he's been taken down off of a horse by the power of Jesus Christ himself. He has a glorious encounter with Jesus. We know that he's blinded. He's blinded for how many days? Anyone? 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 Three. Three! Yes! Three days he's blinded. And I can't help but think that there's like this major revelation taking place in these three days where he is without physical sight. God is like, dude, this is actually your current spiritual state. You is blind. And he's alone, only surrounded by revelation. And then God sends a man to come and heal him. And it's like scales just fall off of his eyes and he can see. And he can see all the way. Not only does he have revelational sight, but he has physical sight that can only see the goodness of the Lord. And what does he do? He gets up and he gets baptized in the spirit, right? And he gets baptized by water and immediately begins to preach. Three days prior, this man is killing people for doing what it is that he is now. Three days. Could we give Jesus some credit? We stretch this out to a lifetime. A lifetime. And he can accomplish it in three days. Three days. And I'm afraid that with this, all of this chatter about revival happening and outpouring happening, that we're going to probably, if we don't shift really quick, we're going to probably put people on the 30-year plan when they come in. But three days is what is on his mind. Read your Bibles. Three days is what is on Jesus' mind. Three days. He can accomplish much in three days. He took back the keys in three days. He, he managed to kill all of humanity. Take back keys. And give us all a resurrection life in three days. And I think that it's a mockery of the cross that it takes us 30 years. Because we play around. Because we're playing around. I don't want to play around anymore. I want to be who he imagined, who he dreamed me up to be. Anyone else? I mean, do you feel that? I want you to feel it like down here. Down here. I want you to feel it. I want to be who you dreamed me up to be. I, I, want, I, want, to, I want to be like clay in his hands. That one second I could look like this, and the next he's like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> no? But can we be those who shift the moment he says? I'm not saying that it's not gonna take a second to like get our footing in that, but we spend so much time retreating to what's familiar. What if Paul would have done that? We wouldn't have the revelation of grace that we have today if he would have messed around and gone back to what was familiar. And honestly, the church has actually spewed a false gospel concerning Paul. We really do believe that he went off for 13 years or whatever it was to um, get transformed. That's not what happened. I don't know if you've heard that, but that is not what happened. Paul immediately, from the time he was baptized, stood and preached. 
the truth of the gospel. And then he went off. This is true. He did. He went off because he began to preach to other nations immediately. Paul didn't go on a retreat with Holy Spirit for 13 years. I don't know the Holy Spirit that that, that, that that is. I don't know because Holy Spirit, when he comes at me, I'm like energized and I have no choice but to do things. I just think that maybe it's a wrong spirit that has us believing that we need to go off. I think it's a slumbering spirit, to be honest with you. The same spirit that the Shulamite woman was introduced to after she had taken her clothes off and crawled into her bed and refused to get up when the Savior came knocking. Not now. You don't understand. My life is in shambles. I actually started thinking about this early on in the week. I was thinking about this portion in, in 2 Corinthians where Paul is like laying out, this has happened to me, you know, his entire litany, and I love it. I love it. And I started thinking about my own. <laughs> and, and I really, I wanted to actually type it all out. Like, well, this has happened, and this has happened, and this has happened. And then I just realized that that probably wouldn't be healthy. And <laughs> but it made me stop and think. I'm like, look at me. I am fully intact and spilling out glory everywhere. And all of this crap has happened in my life. And you know what's even better? You know what's even better? You know, a whole lot of crap has happened to my family. And one of them is sexual abuse. And I actually bought into this story, this fear. There was this fear coming at me. Anybody have fear coming at you on a regular basis? This fear was coming at me concerning my daughters. If I just hit that, so I get a little crazy with my hands. Um, this fear had been coming at me for a lot of years because I know what happens to people that endure sexual trauma. And I think that I, I actually believe that, that, that this trauma would prohibit my daughters from having children. But it didn't. It didn't. It didn't. And I am so thankful. I'm not just thankful that, that they're capable of having babies, but like I'm thankful that I had to go through all of that. And that's so weird and foreign. And I'm like, I'm, I'm out here looking at me going like crazy. You're crazy, girl. But it's true. Like, oh, I can, I can side with Paul in this going like, he learned so much from these hardships. I mean, what did he say? Like, I've died three times. And this isn't like a semblance of dying. Paul died three times. Do you not think that he gained something from that? He was beaten on a regular basis. He's, he's boasting. You know that scripture, the, the psalm where, um, uh, is it Psalm 3? Where um, Dave, I, I have to think of the song to think of the psalm. Um, where he's like, I, I laid my, myself down, but I awoke. For the Lord sustained me. He, he goes, I love this scripture because he's like, I'm surrounded by thousands of enemies. I should be brought down. But no, the Lord has me. Could we just be those people who are a little bit audacious and we're like kind of like a little cocky about it? Maybe like, ha, come at me. See, you can't kill what's already dead. You know? Like, enemies can come at us, and it's not going to affect us if we're already those who are dead, right? We're part of the, the walking dead, right? Like, it's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives within me. And he's already the victorious one. He has already conquered. He's already overcome. And as long as I stay dead, come at me. You know, do your worst. I'm already dead. You can't get deader. It's true. You can't. But we do need to die. You know? 
We do. We have to take that part seriously. The, the story of the Shulamite, and I should have probably read that in the Passion Translation because I realized that that got kind of crazy language. But I loved it when I was reading it in my head. But she could only get there. He could only speak of her in this way because she died to self. It was no longer her who was living. So the whole point is, how do we get back to a conception of our identity? Death, right? This is where we have to look at the cross and we have to realize, I was with him. I was with him. I was there. I was there. We have come up with so many different doctrines surrounding the cross, and most of them are kind of gross, to be honest. My least favorite is that the Father somehow was not there. When Scripture clearly indicates that the Father was within the Son, reconciling the world to himself. Through death! It was through death that we were all brought together within the Father. See, here's the deal. His voice reverberating is the only reason you can see me. Still. His voice reverberating right now is the only reason we can actually see one another. I am made up, you are made up of the Father's voice. So when the Father stepped inside the Son on the cross, he called his voice back into himself. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. We were co-buried. Which means we were there when he took back the keys. So who do the keys belong to? Who do the keys belong to? Hello? Who do the keys belong to? Yeah, they're ours. They're our keys. The keys belong to us. We were there. We already plunged the depths. We were there. We were there. We were already in him when he took back the keys. Jesus took back the keys. And therefore, we got to experience resurrection life with him also. But we can't skip any of these steps. We can't. We can't just like revel in the resurrection parts. We can't. We have to become enamored with the fact that the Father called us back into himself so that we could live, so that we could have life more abundantly, life full tilt. What are we doing with our life full tilt? Jesus gathers the disciples together and he asks them, who do people say that I am? Well, some say you're this, some say you're that. They list off some prophets. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up. Gotta love Peter. Oh my gosh, you're the Christ. You're the one we've been waiting for. In that moment, everything shifted for them. Everything shifted for them in that moment. This one revelation. And Jesus is like, oh my gosh. You didn't know that. You just received revelation from the Father. And Jesus tells them, upon this rock, I will build my church. What rock? The revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. He will build his church. And he tells them, use the keys of the kingdom. What is bound in heaven can be bound on earth. What is loosed in heaven can be loosed on earth. And we need to do some work here. We need to start asking some more questions about this. 
It's such a small portion of scripture, and it's not really broke open anywhere else. Keys are important. We need to know what they do. What do they unlock? What needs to be loosed and what needs to be bound? Do we even know? There's a hundred thousand books on it. But here's what we do. Even the books that we have today is nothing more than the boys going up the Mount of Transfiguration, seeing Jesus transfigured in all of his glory and saying, let's put up a tent. It was revelation for that time. This was an encounter for the boys, right? And they're like, ah, let's encapsulate this. But the same thing happens with scriptures like this, where it's like, here's the keys to the kingdom. And people have revelation and they decide to create doctrine out of it. And we never advance because what my Bible says is that the kingdom is advancing. Therefore, revelation must also be advancing. I'm not saying to not look at it. Look at it, build. Look at it, build. Right? Okay. We'll be done. I see that some of us are getting sleepy, so why don't we stand? The other day I was getting ready and, and John was like, hey, did you take any medicine? I've had a cold. I don't know if you know this, but I have a cold. He brought me some medicine while I was getting ready. And, and I was like, oh, well, I, I'll get it because I, I don't have any water. And he's like, just put your hand on the faucet and drink. And I was like, no. <laughs> but the only reason I bring this up is because in that moment, Jesus reminded me of the story of Gideon and how he formed his army. And how one drinks matters, people. You know what I'm saying? God is just really like highlighting different things right now. Stop creating formulas out of everything. Do it the way I say to do it in the moment. We need to be those who are in tune, in step, in rhythm with him. So that we know what he's doing at any given moment. Because how we drink matters. If he wants me to drink out of a fire hydrant, my answer should be yes, which one? <laughs> right? I, I, don't want to be, I don't want to be dismissed from the army because I'm not doing it appropriately. You know what I'm saying? So let's like, let's stay in tune. So Father, right now, I just thank you. I thank you that you brought us into your inner courts this morning. And I thank you, Father, that you are bringing order into our lives like never before. And I thank you that your justice reigns above every other system that's ever existed. Your justice system is the only one that we are interested in. Your kingdom now. Father, we just thank you that we are a people under the reign of your government. We are the people that are under the rule of your peace. And whatever in our life needs your order, Father, we just invite that now. We invite that because we want to be those who can be used at any given moment. We want to be those who will shift and be remolded. Father, have your way in us. Have your way in us. Your kingdom come, your will be done in us as we walk on this earth. Father, may we be glory dispensers. Holy Spirit, just thank you for the invitation into a deeper space in our prayer. Father, that you are inviting us into the prayer initiative that is touching down on the earth today. That we would become hot embers from your prayer fires. Teach us to pray. Oh, God, let that just be the hunger in our hearts that we would be like the disciples. Ah, oh, teach us to pray, Jesus.
Lord, to pray like you do. Teach us to pray. To enter into your heart, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.